Hello, I'm Mark, and this is the Fast Track Impact podcast for researchers who want to be more productive and achieve real-world impacts from their research. Hello, everyone. Uh, so this week I am out and about, uh, as you can hear from the uh, the background noise. Probably, uh, I am in uh, Poland um, at the United Nations Climate Summit. So this is the twenty fourth conference of the parties, um, uh, and I thought, where where better place to come to find out how you can, in fact, get your research into policy. Um, uh, today, I'm going to uh, base this on interviews. Um, uh, last week, we uh, looked at some of the, the principles underpinning uh, how you might become more influential. Uh, and after this, I'm going to record the second part where uh, we're going to look much more practically. I'm going to think through some of the tools that you might want to, to use to, to make this stuff happen. Uh, but uh, for today, we're going to uh, have a think about this uh, in very practical terms. Now, we do have this uh, this very clear context here, which is uh, climate research um, and uh, the climate convention. Um, but uh, I think, yeah, what better place uh, to think about the complexities of science policy dialogue than an issue space like this? Um, hugely contested science, uh, hugely controversial policies, um, uh, and of course, uh, a very fast-moving political space uh, in terms of what we need to do and the time we have to do. There's a real sense of urgency here at the at the conference. Uh, so the the first person I'm going to uh, to interview is actually one of uh, one of my uh, my science policy uh, heroes, uh, Hans Houston um, from University of Greifswald, um, uh, and I will uh, ask him um, just how he has had the level of impact that he has had, which is really quite inspirational. Um, uh, and he is a man of passion. Uh, he wears his emotions on his sleeves, and yet he sticks to the evidence and uh, and and achieves evidence at scale. And he'll tell us what happened uh, when he was uh, uh, helping uh, provide evidence uh, behind the scenes um, to the Belarusian um, delegation to one of these uh, climate conferences. And uh, and the lead negotiator died at the conference, and he then was asked to step into his shoes, uh, join the political party and then um, uh, actually negotiate on behalf of the country uh, because he was the only person uh, in the de delegation who knew what he was talking about. Uh, what would you do in that situation? Oh my goodness, um, but, uh, but you'll hear what he did. Um, uh, then I'm going to, uh, to, to move to uh, uh, an interview with um, uh, the head of global climate um, uh, research and policy for WWF. Uh, and he's based in the US, he's a, a US uh, citizen himself. Um, uh, and uh, to start thinking about some of the, the really challenging complexities of uh, working in uh, situations where you have administrations, uh, corporations who are ideologically opposed to what the evidence might suggest is a sensible direction of travel, how you work in those kinds of spaces. Uh, and how you as a researcher can engage with intermediaries like WWF to do some of that heavy lifting for you uh, and to potentially make these things a little bit safer for you in terms of your reputation. Uh, and finally, I'm going to uh, uh, talk to um, someone who is uh, high up in the United Nations Environment Programme. 
so uh, as a conduit for global impact, uh, this is something that uh, an organization who has reputation, who has scale, uh, and if you can uh, get your research in with them, then potentially then you can affect change at those kind of scales. Um, so uh, uh, Diana Kapansky is um, someone that uh, I've been working with uh, on my own pathway to impact. Uh, so uh, there's going to be a bit of a peatland flavour uh, to, to that, peatlands and forests and, uh, and climate change. Um, uh, but, uh, but just thinking about how you can work with the UN system, uh, how easy that might be, um, easier than you might expect, I'm going to suggest, uh, but also some of the challenges that, that you may face uh, as well. Uh, so. Uh, at lots of different scales from lots of different perspectives. Uh, stuff you can do to really think now about engaging at high levels in the policy arena. Okay, so I'm here with Professor Hans Euston from Greifswald University in Germany. Uh, now, uh, Hans is one of my um, science policy stars. I talk about Hans uh, on a regular basis with colleagues when I'm talking about uh, science policy dialogue because Hans has pushed this further than any other academic that I've ever met uh, in terms of being passionate about his subject and wanting to affect change on a global scale. Uh, tell me a bit, about, first of all, Hans, about the different roles that you're, you're playing working with the German government, working with uh, the government of Belarus uh, and the various UN conventions around your research. Uh, and what I wanted to do then is, is to go a bit deeper into some of the ethics behind this because uh, I, I emulate some of the things that you do. I, I try and be as engaged and as influential as you are, but I get quite a lot of flack for that as well. And I'm wondering if you do and what some of your responses are to those questions. So first of all, tell us a bit about the, the kind of engagement that you do around your research with policy. I've always been involved in policy. When you are a scientist and you you study peatlands, you say you see that a lot is going wrong, and you also learn to like peatlands and you want to protect them. And therefore, I've always been involved in in in, in policy on a local scale. Last week, my own peatland conservation group in the Netherlands that I founded had its first. Uh, anniversary, 40 years of, uh, of fighting with much success. And that is what also you learn. Hey, you, you, you need really to involve long term. You have to develop very much expertise, uh, scientific expertise, but also local knowledge that you know really what is happening on the floor and interconnect these things. Because a lot of uh, decisions in policy and in politics are being made on the basis of yeah, limited knowledge uh, of science and limited knowledge also of the real situation. And if you have that and can analyze that, then you are very powerful, is my experience. <clears throat> the most important thing is, this, and it's always a question, is there a conflict between uh, being a scientist and being a, a policy maker or whatever you call it? Of course, these are different hats that you have, and you must keep them separated. I have always taken care that I have separated them very clearly, the different positions that I take in. Of course, I function as a scientist, where it is about facts, but you must also be aware that a lot of things in, in, in reality in the world has not, not so much to do with facts, but has to do with choices, with values. Uh, and these have to do also with preferences. And you must make clear 
where the facts stop and where the choices start. So can I just ask you for an example of that? So uh, give us a, a sense of some of those policy hats that you put on sometimes and how practically you take off the hat of the scientist and put on the hat of the policymaker and then again revert back to scientist mode. So what are some of those roles? What are some of the challenges and how do you manage to separate those roles so clearly? Oh, yeah, I have been involved in, uh, in IPCC, uh, that is really science work. This is the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change from the, the Climate Convention from the United Nations, yeah. Yeah, the IPCC uh, tries to bring together all knowledge that is available, uh, really to sort out the facts and come with uh, uh, compilations of knowledge. And of course they uh, propose policy decisions, but only uh, under the type of phrasing, if you want that, then you must do that. Uh, on the basis of these advices, then the Climate Convention takes political decisions. For example, the Paris Agreement had to limit climate change to maximally two degrees and preferably one and a half degrees. Then IPCC again comes with a new report like a few months ago that they have sorted out what it means uh, to uh, arrive at one and a half degrees. And then it is up to policy to say, yeah, I accept these analysis because these are factual analysis. And these factual analysis actually boil down to the point that we have to be zero net emitters of CO2 by 2050, 2060. So you have these really clear messages and uh, one very safe way of doing this is you work through a science policy interface such as the IPCC that then interfaces with policy uh, to provide that hopefully scientific consensus uh, to help move things forward. Uh, in another guise, uh, you have actually uh, uh, represented the, the government of Belarus in some of the climate negotiations. And uh, tell me what led you to, to that and how you have separated that role from your role as a scientist. Uh, that was actually accidental that I ended up in this way because I was advising the Belarusian uh, government uh, during the climate negotiations on peat. Uh, Belarus and Iceland were the first one who started to talk about peatland rewetting in the climate convention. And then the leader of the, uh, the, the, the negotiation uh, uh, club of uh, Belarus asked me to be for one time part of his delegation because he needed my expertise in the negotiations. And the negotiations take place behind closed door. You have to be a party member, an official, had to enter there. So he asked me to join him and that was successful. The next time he asked me again, and then he dropped dead. He died during the negotiations. And then Belarus had nobody anymore with the capacity to deal with land use, land use change and forestry. So they asked me uh, to negotiate on their behalf. And that I have been doing for seven years. And it was successful. We ha have been able to bring peatland rewetting in the Kyoto Protocol, had to keep peat soils in red, reducing emissions for deforestation, forest degradation, and things like that. This was a unique position that you are so deep in the policy world that you really can influence. So I often talk to people about being in the right place at the right time. People tell me, well, hey, uh, things like that, it's just good luck. Uh, and that's never going to happen to me. But of course, the thing that you have was that you were in the right place at the right time, talking to the right people with the right expertise. Uh, you said that your expertise was your power um, uh, and why, uh, as a scientist, you were able to affect change in some of these processes. Um, uh, and I wonder, uh, one of the, the challenges that is, is brought to me by many scientists in particular um, uh, is that, well, actually, if my expertise is my power, then 
to retain that power, I have to protect the, my, my neutrality, my objectivity, my distance. Uh, and, um, and actually, uh, I have to stop um, uh, very far from the policy process and leave that then to the policymakers. And getting involved in that policy process will inevitably involve compromises uh, and, and risks to my reputation and will actually then compromise the science. What would you say to that? Yeah, you, you can operate as a scientist in this societal process. Uh, society has a number of very urgent questions. And as a scientist, you can say, I won't, won't bother about these questions. I want to do my hobbies. But I think that it is also your responsibility as a scientist, being financed by society, to also address issues of science, questions that science uh, that, 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 that society has uh, to address issues of society. Uh, when we talk about climate change, it is nothing bad looking at the real questions that operate there. Uh, and of course, these questions are to some extent completely scientific, but to some extent they are also political. And a lot of uh, political decisions is actually hidden behind pseudo-scientific reasoning. You see in the negotiations that countries use pseudo-scientific arguments that are not valid. And there, of course, scientists must jump in and say, that's nice what you say, but it is not the state of the facts. And that is a very important procedure to force politicians to do politics. There is nothing bad of having an other opinion and other preference, but it is wrong, completely wrong, to present the facts differently from what they are. Absolutely. Uh, so, so yesterday uh, there were people uh, criticizing the fact that David Attenborough was here at the climate c convention, uh, saying the fact that they now have to wheel out uh, celebrities, as they call him, uh, proves that they have no science. Uh, and anyway, uh, if we wanted to tackle climate change, we'd all have to stop drinking fizzy drinks. Um, and, and I think that so, uh, that's a fairly uncredible argument, but you get these arguments that are dressed up in pseudoscience, and I absolutely agree, we can play a really crucial role. Uh, my final question is about passion, because sitting here talking to you, I see the passion in your eyes. Uh, people listening to this sadly can't see that, uh, but I've, I've seen you operating in many different contexts and, uh, and you are known for your passion. Um, uh, you describe this as a bit of a hobby. You go above and beyond what uh, most researchers uh, do in terms of pursuing impacts um, from your work. Um, and I wonder to what extent is that passion um, uh, important or is that actually a trap? Is that a danger? Is that a risk? Is that something that gets you into trouble? Uh, is this something that you can and should harness or do we need to try and be less emotive around these issues if we're going to stick to the evidence? Yeah, for me, passion is important because it is part of my character. I do not necessarily think it is necessary to have passion to be an effective policymaker or an effective scientist. Uh, you can also have other uh, uh, important characteristics. Uh, <clears throat> passion may often look that you are not uh, serious, uh, but that must be shown in the, in the facts that you are saying, not in the way you are saying it, I think. Uh, I try to be as factual as possible, but I want to express things that are important also in a passionate way. I think that passion and optimism are one of the most important features we need uh, to bring about the changes that are needed. Yeah, so it is not just about having our facts straight, having a robust evidence base for what we say, 
how we say it matters as well, uh, because actually in this world there are so many other people uh, with uh, very flaky arguments perhaps communicating those arguments in in very passionate ways and I think to, to be heard, to be, to be listened to, we have to speak with conviction based on that evidence. Hans Houston, thank you very much for your time, for your help. Um, uh, thank you for inspiring me in my career and, uh, and I hope that through this uh, others can be inspired by your example as well. Thank you very much. Uh, so I'm uh, sitting here with Chris Weber from WWF, uh, who is a, a US-based uh, climate uh, researcher working with uh, the organization. Uh, and uh, I'm particularly interested uh, in your perspective, Chris, on the, the role of organizations like WWF, um, other third sector organizations, charities, uh, and how we as researchers can work with organizations like yours to get science into policy, uh, but also your own experience working directly with the corporate sector and uh, it, with climate science uh, in a country where actually ideologically, uh, climate change research is hugely challenging uh, and how you kind of deal with some of those things. So tell us a bit about yourself first and, and the kind of stuff that, that you do, Chris. Sure. Um, yeah, so my name is Chris Weber. Uh, my formal title is uh, Global Lead Scientist for Climate and Energy for the, for the WWF. Um, for those that know the WWF uh, network, it's, um, it's actually a network of about 80 different organizations around, around the world, uh, all coordinated through, a w, through an international entity. So I, I work for the U.S. Uh, WWF, but I also kind of uh, work very closely with various people around, around the network. And um, what my role is, is kind of ever-evolving, I would say, but uh, I, I spend a lot of time at sort of the, the science policy interface, looking at how climate science, um, particularly the IPCC uh, reports, but you know, not, not only, obviously, um, how we can inform our policy positions uh, at, on, on the policy world, as well as how, the, um, how climate science uh, kind of in the risk and opportunity space can translate uh, to the corporate and financial sector as well. Um, and so that, that takes a lot of different, uh, it takes a lot of different shapes uh, in a lot of different places. Um, so I, I, I end up working with a lot of scientists, a lot of non-scientists, uh, and um, trying to do this translation um, is of great interest to, to me, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. So some of the research that I've done um, uh, on science policy interfaces, um, uh, I've noticed uh, the, the power that uh, organizations like yourself have. So um, in my most recent paper, uh, we did some social network analysis um, of UK uh, climate science into policy uh, and identified um, other than uh, a, a relevant government agency to environmental charities, uh, the IUCN, International Conservation for uh, International Union for the Conservation of Nature, uh, who I work with, um, uh, and the RSPB as having particular influence in terms of getting policy into uh, into uh, sorry getting evidence into policy um, and so if you are a researcher and you're thinking yeah I, I think I've got evidence that would be really useful for some of the things that an organization like yours is doing 
and you think, well, hey, I don't have time to go to conferences like this where you're at. Um, and I'd quite like for someone else to take my research up and travel this for me. What kind of tips have you got for researchers who want to work more closely with really influential organizations like your own? That's a great question, and I think it, it varies a lot in different places um, because obviously the you know the role of civil society is is very different in different countries. Um, you know, just thinking around our our network, the you know the way that say WWF US works with uh, with climate science is very different than the way that say WWF China works with uh, with uh, its climate scientists and uh, and you know interfaces with the with the government. So. Uh, I think that context and nuance are, are important here, but the the first I, the first rule I would say is sort of is kind of show up and kind of you you have to have the having the intent to kind of get your your science and message out there is um, is really only the zeroth step. Uh, you know you have to you have to first kind of like make make the effort and it's going to be different in different places how to you know what the best path to do uh, to do that is. Certainly, working with um, translational civil society organizations like the ones you mentioned, uh, I you know IUCN and RSPB, uh, I would throw WWF in that in the picture in many uh, many of these countries as well. Um, often we're off we often have the kind of expertise in um, translating complex messages to the policymaking community, the business community, and the public um, that many people in academia might not have formal training in. Um, so getting the, making that kind of first contact with, uh, you know, whoever the kind of trusted, uh, organizations are in, you know, in your, in your country, um, is, is probably a pretty good first step. Uh, and, you know, usually people like WWF can be very helpful in kind of directing, well, you know, maybe working with, uh, in the UK, you know, maybe it's, you, you want to go talk to this person at DEFRA, like to help get your message out. I know they're, I know they're not called DEFRA anymore. I can't never remember what they're called, but, <laughs> uh, you know, but whereas maybe, you know, in the US, if you want to have an effective, uh, effective role, you should, you know, work through this kind of media angle. It's going to vary, uh, in different places. And so I'm hesitant to kind of comment at a global scale, but the, uh, the definitely, Working with civil society can be a really good tool to uh, to try and kind of understand how the, what the best path might be for a certain message. Yeah, so that's really clear, isn't it? Can you give me an example? Um, if you just think back to some of the the researchers that that you've worked with um, in your career at WWF. Uh, and what are some of the, the kind of the practical ways in which you've come into contact with them? How have researchers met you, reached out to you? What, is, what has worked for you? Uh, so show up, but how and where? I would say probably um, in, in the, you know, the continually digitizing world that we live in, the best... Uh, Definitely, the one of the best avenues to work through is kind of trying to get the message out into the into online media, and that can take some you know some different strategies. There's definitely some fairly famous and uh, accomplished climate scientists that have you know that are a lot of Twitter followers, and as I'm sure you're you're aware. Um, so, like getting getting your message out directly, uh, you know, as an authority, like through, through something like like that, can be very helpful. There's also, um, you know, increasingly places like Carbon Brief and uh, and Inside Climate News, like the, the kind of what I'd call the climate news aggregators of the world, um, they are they are 
some of the primary conduits to really get uh, get the message to out to the right people. They're read by media, policymakers, NGOs, and the you know the general pub interest general public as well, kind of alike. So they they have proven, I think, in the recent years to be some of the best mechanisms and 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 like pathways to get uh, new ideas and new research out there because they are because they're serving this no one can read everything obviously and they they serve this really useful purpose for everyone who wants to stay up to date about climate things um regardless of whether they sit in a government or you know an ngo or uh, or a business yeah you have to be doing the research and publishing it and then getting it out and uh, for me being in the right place at the right time is a very easy thing to do via social media and 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 you can get noticed and you can get connected with very influential people it's quite surprising where that can take you um i, I guess the final thing i wanted to explore with you is is it, it, the kind of more controversial side of this um so you work with corporations uh, you work with governments around the world uh, and none of those corporations or governments will have an entirely clean bill of health uh, i myself am working with nestle at the moment in one of my projects um, uh, with various developing world countries um, uh, as part of the un's global peatland initiative and yeah you cannot find uh, any government uh, that has an entirely clean bill of health and that is not uncontroversial to to work with um, uh, and uh, of course, one way of sidestepping uh, the reputational issues of being associated with those corporations or governments is to work through an intermediary like yourselves. Um, but uh, from your own experience, um, uh, and and just trying to help those who want to reach out more directly, uh, how do you deal with the very real conflicts of interest and controversies that surround collaborating with, informing, influencing corporations and governments that ideologically uh, might have quite different positions to you and that in terms of their ethics, um, uh, human rights record, etc., may not be 100% kosher? Yeah, it's a really good and very tough question uh, for anyone working in civil society. Um, you know, increasingly more and more civil society organizations are working with business. WWF has, you know, been a leader in this space for a long time. Um, and these questions are tough. We we are constantly asking ourselves the same things of sort of like what what are the true kind of no-go areas that, that, we're, that we're not willing to go to? And uh, where are we willing to engage with... Uh, say, with companies that um, we may not share 100% uh, <laughs> vision with, but we recognize that there's a valid theory of change in working with them to, uh, to transform their business and, and make, them, you know, make them more sustainable. Um, different NGOs have attacked this very differently. I, I think that um, you know, you'll, you'll, see more, uh, you'll see some organizations that are much, taking a much more inclusive, uh, you know, we're, we're willing to work with anyone kind of uh, uh, perspective. And there are others that are, have much stricter rules. Um, and I think it, it really gets to the kind of culture of, uh, of the organization and sort of how it sees itself. With WWF, it's um, further complicated by the fact that we work in 90 different countries and the role of business uh, in the sort of um, in these different economies is very different. The role of business in, um, you know, in working with government is very different in different uh, different places. So again, there's like a, there's a lot of nuance that uh, that we have to try and uh, keep track of. And 
I think probably the number one message I would tell to anyone in this space is that um, really transparency is, is the most important thing. Um, really making sure that uh, people are aware of uh, in terms of academia, who's funding your research, uh, being very transparent about that uh, and, and, and those relationships. Um, we have the same sort of thing in, NG in the NGO space. We, when we work with, uh, with companies, we're, we try to be as transparent as possible about why we're working with, with some companies because almost invariably, as you, as you said, there's, there's going to be someone who could take offense at, uh, <laughs> at WWF working with, uh, with uh, anyone, really. Because um, no one has a clean bill of health, as you said. So um, being kind of transparent and, uh, and open about the, you know, what is the theory of change of, uh, of kind of working with, uh, with different actors is, is, I think, the best tool to kind of uh, get people on the same page. Yeah, I think it's a great answer. Um, I guess just following up from that briefly, perhaps an unanswerable question, um, focusing on the U.S. context here. Um, but uh, it's a great example. Uh, do you work um, with governments, organizations that uh, appear to be ideologically opposed to the direction of travel that the, the evidence seems to be taking us in? Um, uh, and uh, and taking the the example of the Trump administration in America and its stance on climate science um, and, and whether or not to believe or tackle climate change, um, do you engage? Um, uh, and if so, how do you engage with an administration or an organisation that uh, appears to be ideologically blocked from looking at, at evidence? What, what kind of approach can you take and should you take? I may have to punt and say that question's above my pay grade, but uh, I, I think one thing I will note, uh, well, two things. Um, the first is, is that uh, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's a black and white issue. Uh, every, first of all, WWF obviously cares about a lot of environmental issues besides climate. Um, so even if it were black and white that, a, a, that an administration was you know, ideologically opposed to uh, doing something on climate, we may want to still work with them on protected areas and biodiversity and water and oceans and the other priorities that WWF has. Um, but secondly, I, I, I would say that um, we've spent a lot of time uh, over, the last, uh, over the last couple of years working uh, introducing and then working with uh, a coalition of partners called the We Are Still In, um, uh, in initiative that basically represents the largest uh, group of subnational corporate investors, uh, civil society uh, members that kind of were willing to stand up uh, after the announcement uh, of the U U.S. intention to leave the Paris Agreement that these uh, that these organizations are still, you know, still in in spirit. Um, and when there, I think that that story kind of shows that even when it seems as though there may be a uh, no no way out of a certain initiative uh, or a, of a certain circumstance, like there are always going to be um, allies to work with, uh, and we've we've been very I think successful at kind of putting together this coalition. Uh, and actually, just tomorrow, our, our pavilion here is going to transform itself into the U.S. Climate Action Center, and that's going to highlight a lot of the actions that are happening on the ground uh, it's within the subnational and corporate and investor spaces uh, in, in the United States and show some of the positive stories 
that we want to tell to the international community who may not know about them. That's truly inspiring. Never give up hope. Uh, you've got the evidence, um, you've got the, the passion, the will to take that places. You can find someone somewhere who will listen. Um, and maybe you have to play a long game, but, uh, but uh, we are still in. I love it. Uh, Chris, thank you very much. Thank you. So you can probably hear the uh, change in ambience at this point. Um, uh, the, it's been a long day, uh, but uh, I am now uh, in a restaurant with uh, Diana Kapansky from the United Nations Environment Programme. Um, uh, we've been working together today uh, on a side event, and uh, I thought I would take this opportunity to uh, ask some questions about how, as researchers, we can engage more effectively with policy at this kind of UN level. Um, because I think for, for many researchers, it feels completely out of reach. Um, it's, you just have no idea how or where you would even start. Um, uh, and uh, there are a bunch of assumptions that, well, hey, they've got it all sorted anyway, and they know everything that they need to know. They've got all the evidence and research programs, and well, there's a United Nations University, isn't there? And, 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 and I guess for me, the key thing I'm interested in, in understanding is how do you work with evidence and how do you work with researchers from universities and how can researchers more effectively reach out and help you in the kind of job that you do so don't, maybe to start off with um you don't have to hold it off sure. uh, just to start off with um tell us a bit about you and your role and what you do and then how you work with evidence as part of that Okay, great. Thanks so much. So I am working with UN Environment and UN Environment Program, and I'm the Global Peatlands Initiative Coordinator. I have a few other hats, but uh, let me speak about the Global Peatlands Initiative because I think that's one of the real big areas where UN Environment, as the coordinator of the Global Peatlands Initiative, has been tasked to bring uh, science to policy. And... Um, one of the big mechanisms that, uh, one of the key ways that UN Environment works is by actually doing that, is to make sure that policy decisions are made on sound science, credible science, and depoliticized de science, which is quite important uh, also in our partnership, but also in um, making the best decisions for the environment, for people and the planet. Um, so the Global Peatlands Initiative draws uh, on four areas. We work on knowing where peatlands are and how they're changing, and that is a huge pillar for science. Um, and we work with uh, major institutions, but also academia. And for us, our best source of information and our most convincing argument has been actually from scientists um, that speak without a political voice. Uh, because we can bring that pure science to policymakers to make the best decision. Now, the way that they could do it better is by um, making it understandable in language that um, a policymaker that is uh, a minister of environment or a minister of forestry or minister of agriculture or minister of marine and fisheries these ministers are not necessarily scientists, and I think that scientists need to understand that, that they might be appointed in that position 
for many different reasons. And they've got the task to try and understand the science that's put in front of them. And quite often the science and the uh, terminology is so um, obscure that it weighs down the information, uh, the weighs down the gravity, actually. It doesn't give the gravity of the situation because people get distracted in terminology. And, and I think what we can do as researchers is actually try to agree on common terms. Um, I think that scientists as well need to learn how to speak terminology across different languages and adopt across different zones. I think that's one of been one of the challenges of the Global Peatlands Initiative, and one effort that the UN Environment has been making is to translate terms into understandable ways to communicate, but across many languages. And um, that's an exchange that I think scientists, researchers need to to a skill that they need to understand. So when you say languages, we're not just talking um, uh, about uh, English versus German. Uh, we're talking about the, the languages of different sectoral interests, um, people from different uh, ideolog ideologies in terms of their, their politics uh, and things like that, I I'm guessing. Um, yes. um, uh, and when you say then depoliticized science, can you tell me more about what you mean by that? Um, what might be an example of politicized versus non-politicized science? And how can we go about um, presenting work in ways that is more likely to to work in the UN context where you have to not be political uh, about what you do with evidence? Yeah, for me, it's about facts and it's about the credibility of those facts. And I think that although applied research is very important, that, you know, looks at the context of the environment, it can also sometimes get politicized in the fact that um, some of the research is aiming to answer certain questions. So I think this the separation between academia, uh, researchers, and the developmental, uh, maybe the developmental uh, me sort of area that they're trying to influence, I think it's still, we still need to unfortunately keep it separate. Um, while I do completely support applied research. Um, I do think that a certain re separation between um, pure research and applied research is important. And you, as uh, institutions, universities need to be able to do both, really. But I think that um, governments are way more receptive to research uh, facts and figures that actually have been done with the intention of delving into science rather than delving into um, sort of clouded political sort of issues. So when you have scientists that are working with um, different interest groups, I think it also skews the science. For example, we have uh, scientists that work with uh, companies and do the research for those companies. I mean, you have to have a certain degree of um, yeah, independent, independent thinking and also that there has to be a certain criteria behind that, that the UN as an organization will only bring science, scientific information to the table that has not been skewed by that, 
the politics. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think what's what's interesting here is that hey, there's a lot of researchers out there who do do work with companies and whose research is funded from the commercial sector. And um, and you may know as a researcher that you are asking the questions you were going to ask anyway, that there is no interference, you can publish whatever you find, um, and you maybe feel quite comfortable with that. Um, but you have to bear in mind how that looks, um, uh, and, uh, and clearly you're going to be transparent about your funding um, uh, to, to avoid uh, a perception of a conflict of interests. But once that is out there and it's disclosed, then there is the danger that people then simply won't listen to that. So I think that is important. But then what about the role of social science, um, and in particular qualitative social science? that tries to go beyond quantifying facts to understanding the, the qualities of relationships and to look at some of the, the, the social factors that perhaps determine behaviour, for example. So um, we look, both work a lot with farmers, um, uh, and uh, although a lot of farmer behaviour may well be determined by the economics of what they can get for a product or how much someone might pay them to do something. Um, it's also very clear from the research evidence that there are a whole series of other social, cultural factors that actually play into decisions that they make and determine, therefore, how a programme or policy may actually play out on the ground and without that qualitative evidence, uh, purely based on the quantitative economics of, of, uh, of a scenario you may get things very wrong. So is there a role for, for qualitative research and what is the kind of rigour that you would expect to see that would make that kind of research work for you in, uh, in UNEP um, uh, versus some of these governments that you're saying will only listen to stuff which you can see on a graph, on a map, um, which is fair enough. Um, uh, you can't really speak for them, but from your perspective, what, what, is, the, what is the role for social science and qualitative? I think there's a big role for social, social science because that's contextualizing. It contextualizes actually how you change behaviors. And I think that everyone, well, at least in the UN environment, wants to actually have results. And results don't come with just decisions. They come with implementation, they come with uptake, and they come with this um, change behavioral change in the end. Behavioral change is, of course, on beliefs, it's on practice, and there has to be something that ignites that change. And for me, quite often that's, the, at least in our field, the science ignites that change. Urgency ignites change or disaster, unfortunately. But I think that each and every uh, piece of work uh, has to be contextualized, whether there's what is the driver? What is the what is the driver that is driving that behavior, and how do you tackle that driver to actually make the change? And if you identify um, that the driver is a cultural value, like for example, eating bush meat, or you know, a huge uh, practice, cultural practice, or uh, a tradition of, of burning peatlands to actually do do grouse shooting, or or um, yeah, hunting and all these other behaviors that are actually in, in, embedded in our cultural norms. How do you change cultural norms? And that's actually in one individual at a time. And I think that in understanding communities, it's so important 
because um, application of those approaches can be the transformation of society. And so there's ways that you can do that through naming and shaming. Uh, that was sort of like the way of the past where people scared people into work. But actually, one of my colleagues mentioned the other day, Martin Luther King didn't say, I have a nightmare. Yeah. He said, I have a dream. And so we need to inspire people to act, to be responsible, and actually only by understanding what drives them culturally and as a community can you actually embed your messages and to make sure that your messages are heard by, by different different target audiences. So uh, social scientists have such a role to play. Um, also in making the science accessible. It's really about accessibility, application. It doesn't make it any less important. Um, qualitative, we've learned over the years that qualitative is just as important as quantitative. We might everyone culturally like facts and figures in the northern hemisphere, but actually southern hemisphere um, decision makers also are intuitive and they're also driven by the people. So I think um, cultural, cultural and uh, social science is more in tune with options that will work for people uh, and numbers, vast numbers of people at once. Yeah, yeah. I think especially in a democratic context, you want this stuff to resonate and you can get that lived reality of the people on the ground who are talking. Uh, our food has now arrived, so I'm going to ask you one very brief final question, which is any practical tips for people who think, well, yeah, I could never work with the UN system, that's way beyond my reach. Um, I know in our context, I think uh, your programme reached out to the UK government, who then went to the charity I work with, and that's how I got involved in this. But uh, in terms of someone who wants to reach out, they think they've got some evidence that could really make a difference to a United Nations programme. How do you go about doing that? Actually, I think the UN is so accessible. It's so interesting. I think we're very receptive. And I think that um, a lot of the work we did it do ourselves at UN Environment is science. So we, we also speak the same language. You are scientists, um, aren't we? Yeah, many scientists, many lawyers, many economists. Um, but I think uh, what people should do is not hesitate to reach out um, on topics, on urgent issues that are emerging issues. We have many ways that we engage scientists through our global environmental outlook or through our Frontiers publication. Frontiers publication talk, talks to people and, and actually asks uh, what are the top emerging issues in science that people need to be aware of. And our next Frontiers publication has peatlands and permafrost on the map. So we've listened actually to scientists as well as countries on what are emerging and important issues. And I think UN Environment is a place that researchers and scientists should be feeling at home to reach out regularly, to participate in the discussions. I think that um, United Nations Environmental Assembly as well um, welcomes inputs from different researchers and scientists to inform policy development. but but just to be there, much more modern ways of communicating. More people are reaching out to um, scientists for webinars uh, to get your voice out there or through blogs. Um, we're always looking for great content. And um, 
I think as well, getting involved in some of our peer-reviewed work is really quite important because the credibility of UN Environment's voice relies on the credibility of scientists. So I would say get involved. Brilliant. Diana Kapansky, thank you very much and enjoy your meal. Well, I've enjoyed the the three interviews that I uh, did today. And um, of course, I spoke to many more people about many other things. But you've got to listen into at least three of those conversations. And I hope that despite the very clear climate context for this, that you've taken away some more generalizable lessons for whatever area of policy or practice you are trying to influence, wherever you want to put your evidence. And I hope you can see that that from this, these are real people. Uh, These are are people who are, like us, trying to scratch a living, trying to do their jobs. And evidence uh, is a huge part of what they do. Uh, And the question is, is your evidence available? Is it accessible? Is it understandable? And what could we each do to make that evidence more easily accessible by the right people in the right place at the right time? whether that's coming to conferences like this, whether that's making your work more visible online so that you are more discoverable and you are in that right place when someone comes looking for that evidence, or whether it's just finding these people by name, uh, identifying that they are relevant to your interests, that you've got something that you've got that you can offer, uh, and actually directly reaching out to those people. And I think we often forget just how credible we are as researchers. I make some assumptions here that we are doing credible research. Uh, but if you're doing credible research, you're based at a university, as many of us are, uh, then uh, instantly uh, you have something that will be of interest to, to other people. Uh, so it's about taking that work, making it relevant, and making it relevant to those people. We can all do this. This, uh, this is not rocket science. Uh, we can find out who these people are. They are way more approachable. And actually, when we genuinely seek those people and start looking properly, we discover that they are a lot more easy to find uh, an approach than we might expect. So uh, as uh, as my colleague from WWF said, uh, it's uh, it's about being in the game. It's about putting your stuff out there. And you're not going to get anywhere unless you just wanting to make that difference uh, isn't, uh, isn't enough. And I hope that based on these interviews, uh, you are encouraged and uh, that you have the confidence to make that first move and try and get your evidence into policy. <laughs>